0: Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, review the medical literature, and review case studies. Today's show topic is testosterone therapy in men. How much is hype? Who really needs it? How to increase your own testosterone production? Our guest today is Dr. Gary Huber. Dr. Huber earned his medical degree from Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine, did his residency at Doctors' Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and is board-certified in emergency medicine, which he practiced for over 20 years before getting into integrative medicine. And I heard Dr. Huber give an outstanding talk at the American Academy of Advancement of Medicine meeting in Las Vegas this past month, or this month, actually, uh, called The Evolution of Testosterone, Dispelling Myths and Charting a Future. And with that said, there's lots of myths and and publicity about testosterone therapy. So, Dr. Huber, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hey, happy to be here, Kirk. And I hope you had a peaceful Christmas and a happy Christmas, and it's the day after, so you're oh, already working again. <laughs>
1: it was awesome. It was awesome just to kick back a little bit and have some fun, and today the office is closed, so I get the pleasure of doing something I enjoy, which is talking to you about hormones, because I think it's just a fascinating topic. So, this does not work in any... Any sense of the word?
0: Well, with that said, how did you get into the whole bioidentical hormone business? You were an emergency emergency room physician, and and then you got integrative medicine. Did you jump right into hormones first, or what did you do? Well, it's it's a funny story. You know,
1: you're just doing your thing, and uh, I'd always been kind of uh, a healthy guy. I really believe in exercise and diet, and, and just staying healthy. The best way to avoid disease is not to do dumb things that that encourage it. So that said. The nursing staff kind of knew that Dr. Huber was a healthy guy, would always bring me things, you know, help me lose weight. Or what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And one of the nurses one day handed me a pamphlet on bioidentical progesterone and said, have you ever heard about this? I said, no. And I was curious and just started reading it. And my first thought, I told this story a thousand times. As I read the pamphlet, I'm thinking, well, this can't be true because if this were true, every OBGYN on the planet would be using this stuff like crazy. And I did some research on it. I was curious about it. And I found that it was true. That bioidentical progesterone was a thousandfold safer and better and more physiologic than the drugs we'd been using. And the more I explored it, the more I realized, wow, I feel like I'd kind of been deceived. I've kind of been uh, given a slanted picture by my boards. And the truth really had been kind of covered up. So I became fascinated with this little mystery and began to explore bioidentical hormones first starting with women and then later with men and i realized that nobody in my city was really doing this and yet it seemed like such an amazing therapy to help women just maintain their health so you know uh, i thought well i can hardly do it wrong since nobody's doing it at all and i just started very gradually uh starting treating women with bioidentical hormones because here i am an er doc so where am i going to do this certainly not in the ER. But uh, over time, as I gave talks and began to create a bit of a following, my wife gave me the proverbial, you know, do something with this or put it away. And so I actually started a small integrative practice just one day a week, seeing women to deal with their menopause. And that's kind of where it all began. Well, let me ask you something. Was that John R. Lee's
0: work originally on progesterone, that book? That
1: yeah, talk? and I had, I had the good fortune of running into a, a PCCA pharmacist in my area who gave me a bunch of CDs of lectures uh, from the PCCA group. That's a pharmacy group. And one of them was John Lee and uh, a lot of other significant speakers at the time. So, yeah, I read John Lee's work and kind of went from there.
0: So how did you get from John R. Lee, who was basically a progesterone dude, so to speak, um, to the estrogen and testosterone and DHEA? Where did you get that training from? Or was it on the fly? Oh, it was all on the
1: fly it's it's interesting it's like any any uh mystery you try to unravel one clue needs to the next to the next to the next because if you're going to read dr lee's work and his idea was just progesterone is the only thing you need to worry about estrogen is evil estrogen causes problems just give people progesterone and, and the world will be shiny and that's not entirely true right and but but he was awesome in bringing this idea to light so that others uh could expand on it and that's what happened so if you're going to give somebody progesterone, then the next question is, well, how are you going to measure hormones? And that leads you to Dr. Zava and ZRT Labs and doing salivary testing. And so I met Dr. Zava, who was a key player in this because Dr. Zava has spent more than 20 years researching breast cancer and is one of the smartest guys I've ever met, uh, especially in the field of hormones. So he was the next great step toward educating me. I would read anything I could find, my, get my hands on. And spent more and more time going into the medical literature to to research what bioidentical hormones were and more importantly what they weren't because there was certainly enough myth to go around well you've you've opened up a can of worms that i was going to open up
0: later but the reason i my (laughs) my my antennas went up with your talk is because i listened to that group and i say that group as as colleagues but the whole hormone um, group and i've gone to probably i don't know 10 15 different hormone training programs and I always used to come back and say, you know, it, you, you would get a hormone dose depending on who the instructor was and how he assessed hormones. So, for example, if it was a, uh, a serum guy, you'd get one level. The It could be the same person. If you had um, a saliva guy, you'd get another or girl, excuse me, you'd get a, another hormone level. If they did um, urine testing, you'd get another horm- uh, hormone starting dose. It yeah. would all be different. And it yeah. used to drive me crazy. And so, I think it's very instructive to tell why you choose saliva for certain types of hormone treatment because it's still to this day I see the same mistakes or I, inaccuracies mm-hmm. that in colleagues that have been doing this a long time. And I hear it every time. You know, like for example, someone will um, try and give progesterone and measure serum levels and they don't see anything rise and then it's just guesswork after that. So could you yeah. explain... Hopefully, some some practitioners yeah. are listening. That
1: controversy and how you dealt with it—that's that's a difficult, that's a difficult step. When I first started my practice, and I and I after doing it for about a year, I joined another larger practice where an OB Gen, uh, nice gal—I won't mention her name—but she was an OB Gen doing bioidentical hormone, and she had a pretty big practice doing that, and yet she was using all serum. And so here I'm just look—I'm just curious, George. People go, "Wow, well, you're really smart." I am not smart. I'm just curious. And if something doesn't add up or something doesn't make sense, I just dig and I explore and I, I try to find out what's going on. And so here I am talking with this person that's been doing identical hormones for a decade. I knew, and I'm reading about saliva and I'm trying to understand the physiology. And every time I bounced it off of her, no, 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 just do it this way. Just do it serum. So just like you said, Kirk, depending on what your background is, you're going to do what you've been taught and very little else. Um, the more I started exploring the physiology of how hormones move through the body. How does our body actually produce them? And what are our normal levels from When you start getting into the nitty gritty and that's really how you know if if somebody's teaching you to do hormones, they should really understand the physiology of hormones. And if they don't, they can't tell you what normal production is or how the physiology of subcutaneous versus topical hormones move and react. Then you should maybe be a little skeptical. Um, I started talking a lot with Dr. Zaba, who, like I said, is very intelligent in these areas. And started reading, and you can go back as far as the early '90s. Dr. Chang did what I think was a landmark study, where we, we, as you said, a lot of clinicians were putting progesterone on the skin and then measuring serum, and that just doesn't work. Well, he did the first great study that showed that beyond a shadow of a doubt. He did something very simple, in women that were going to go to surgery for removal of a breast mass. He gave them radio-labeled progesterone two weeks before the surgery. And then the day of surgery, they took a little specimen of tissue from the patient to check them for the radio-labeled progesterone, and they took a blood draw. And guess what they found? They found that two weeks of radio-labeled progesterone was abundant in the breast tissue, huge amounts, and yet there was little to none found in the bloodstream. And it really demonstrated that when you put on a topical cream, it's not going into the venous blood arena. It's, it's being transferred through the body by diffusion, by lymph flow, um, by, uh, by arterial flow. But what they found was the, the hormone is getting into the tissue. The tissue is using it and kicking out metabolites. And if you're not measuring metabolites in the venous blood, and we're not, then you're not going to see it. We're only measuring parent compounds. We're looking for progesterone. Well, progesterone's already been modified by the cell into allopregnanolone and other metabolites. And so that's why we're not seeing it. So chain study was very simple, very eloquent in demonstrating how hormones moved. And then years later, we look at men's hormone and testosterone and we failed to go to school on what we learned from the ladies, which was topical testosterone is going to get metabolized. You're not going to see it in the venous blood and it's going to move in the body just like progesterone. But for some reason, we're not recognizing that we're we're having to learn all over. Just like we made errors in women, we're making errors in men by dosing it at a very really high dose. And, and we should talk about that ten percent rule because that's kind of a uh, an idiom that's that's certainly prevalent in the in the hormone community. But it's just it's just wrong.
0: Well, I want to you know you said th- your one paragraph there. If people would listen to it. For example, I want to go with men on this on this particular talk. But I would always notice that, for example, if you give a hundred milligrams of progesterone in a pill to help people sleep, it gets. I always tell people it gets converted to allopregnanolone, and that's what puts you to sleep. Not the progesterone is raising your your blood level. And but people, when they feel like they fall asleep because of the progesterone orally, they think they're getting progesterone in their blood and i would and i see this over and over again that 100 milligrams of progesterone orally is a dink dose if you give you know 20 milligrams in a cream they're not no comparison so so what you're saying is 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 really so important and let's let's translate over to men because that's what this talk was about so i'm in a lecture one day and and uh pamela smith comes up and says uh I asked a question. She goes, how much does a, a male produce every day of testosterone? And for the, for the life of me, I couldn't remember. <laughs> and this is when I was measuring both serum and, and doing saliva at the same time. And so anyway, it turns out, and maybe you can correct me on this, but I, I think she said four to seven milligrams per day, somewhere in that range. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I would, I would expand the upper end a little bit uh, to say it's probably between five to 12 milligrams. Okay. But yeah, in that ballpark. Right. Very small. So
0: then all my introductory hormone courses and uh, for men were topical creams that would be cookie-cuttered by the either, either the instructor or the pharmacist speaking between 25 milligrams at a low dose, but usually 50 to 100 milligrams a day. And in one case, a very expert that was teaching courses all over the country was using 200 milligrams a day of testosterone. And yeah. so I... You know, I would I would try and share this with people, and it just it bounced off dead walls. So let's stay with men a uh, men a while. <laughs> so let's just stay uh, with men because I do I, for two or three years. I measured both serum and saliva in everybody, and I saw this. So I saw obviously this this discrepancy. But so if we're doing five to twelve milligrams of testosterone a day, then and you use injections as well, correct? Yeah, I do topical injections and even pellets. Right. So you're going to be measuring, if you were doing injections, would you measure in serum or saliva?
1: I would measure in serum because you're reliably going to see it. And there's a very big distinction when you use a topical cream versus an injection. And I think this is what's often missed in understanding the physiology. When I put a cream on your skin, uh, depending on whether you're looking at saliva or capillary blood, you're gonna see a spike in that over the first few hours. Uh, if I put a testosterone cream on your arm, within an hour, we're gonna see a spike in the saliva, and then about six to seven hours later, we're gonna see a spike in the capillary blood. Now, why the capillary blood? Well, because that's mixed blood. It's mixed arterial and venous, and we're seeing the testosterone being picked up by the arterioles going through the subcutaneous tissue, And so we're going to see that spike, but then it's going to fall back to baseline. When I give you a sub-Q injection, that hormone is in a large dose under the skin, and minute by minute, by hour by hour, your arterials are picking it up and moving it through your system. So that's different. You know, with the topical cream, we're kind of getting a splash effect and then then drop to baseline. And with the sub-Q, it's there continuously, 24 hours a day. We don't see a drop like we do with the topical. And so that's, that's a different type of measurement that we have to get because we're not trying to capture the spike in the saliva or the spike in the capillary. We're really just trying to measure what's the free amount of hormone. And that's the difference too. When we look at saliva, we're looking at free hormone, but we're looking at the baseline and the baseline is gradually going to creep up over time as we use the topicals. So if you don't Look at that physiology and how the testosterone is moving, and you're expecting to see, um, you know, a, a standard level in the bloodstream. You're going to have to overdose the topical cream in order to get that venous level up. Said a different way, if I give you a physiologic dose of testosterone and it gets into the cell and gets used, it's not going to cause a change in the venous blood work. And by the time I increase your dose so that I see it in the blood, I've now overdosed at the tissue level. I've had to give you such a huge dose that literally it's just spilling into the venous system. So by the time I see quote-unquote normal in the venous blood, you have overdosed the cells in the periphery and that's when you begin to see tachyphylaxis. And probably like you, Kirk, when I started doing this, I followed the gospel, right? I drank the Kool-Aid. I did what I was told. I started with 50 milligrams, worked up to 100, 150, and almost unanimously, I kept seeing the same pattern. I would start a guy on a dose. Maybe I only start him on 25 and then go to 50, et cetera. And initially, they'd say, oh, doc, I'm feeling better on follow-up. I'm feeling better. And then just about the time I get the venous blood up to 500, at that appointment, I'm waiting for them to come in. The venous blood's at 500. I'm giving him 100 or more of topical testosterone. I can't wait to have this appointment. And the patient would walk in and go, you know, I felt better three months ago. I don't feel as good now as I did. And what I finally realized what I was doing was I was creating tachyphylaxis. By the time i get the venous blood to a quote-unquote normal level, the peripheral cellular level was so high that I was beginning to shut down testosterone receptors. Got it. And so in the in the common traditional model, what do we do? Well, we increase the dose even higher, trying to get that good effect back. And you're just burying yourself deeper and deeper in the hole. And so what I found was, and that's when I began to read and and talk with Dr. Zava more, and I found other practitioners who were also saying the same thing that I was seeing. And as we began to dose more physiologically, giving anywhere from 5 to 7.5, 10, 12.5 milligrams daily, I was actually getting better results. I was seeing less tachyphylaxis. Well, so, you,
0: well you said you said so many pearls there. I mean, I, that's probably the most important thing. If if that if your little paragraph or two was said at the beginning of every introductory hormone, uh, male hormone uh, training, it would save a lot of grief because I, I, tachyphylaxis, I would always say to the patient, you're dulling the receptor site. You know, kind of a, an, arch- an archaic way of saying it, and I saw that over and over and over again. So I- in short then, what what I hear you saying is that when you do topical testosterone, we'll just stay with that for right now, you're going to have to use saliva testing to get an accurate reading, and it's going to be much lower Phys, well, more physiologic doses. And so that's a real mental mind game for someone who's gone to another doctor, got that initial hit at 50 or 100 milligrams, not getting benefit anymore. Then they come to you. How do you talk them back down to say, listen, the bet, the, probably the more physiologic dose for you and eventually long-term is going to be between 7 and 12, 15 milligrams. How do you do that?
1: Well, let me add one little addendum to that last comment that I made, which is, how many clinicians out there, once they get the blood levels up to 500 and they have the patient on 100 or 200 milligrams of topical, how many of them are now starting to see, out of nowhere, rising estrogen, rising PSA, rising DHT, and now we're into that topic of, oh, gosh, how do we stop testosterone from spilling into estrogen? How do, Should we use chrysin or should we use aromatase uh, inhibitors or should we right? That's always the conversation you see. Mm -hmm. And it always struck me as odd. I always thought, well, wait a minute. If I'm simply taking a low hormone up to a normal level, why would I have these problems? I can't have these problems unless I'm overdosing them. You talk about elevation in hemoglobin in the matter and causing polycythemia with testosterone. No, not unless you're overdosing them. That's what I've seen in my practice. As I've modified my doses, I rarely, rarely see red cell counts go high. Why would they go high? If you're taking a normal hormone to a normal level, why would the body suddenly react with elevated hematocrit, elevated estrogen? It it doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't add up. So when that guy comes in to me and he says, well, my doctor had me on 200 milligrams, you know, I take it back to the beginning. Well, how did you feel and how did you feel when it started? And let's look at your numbers. Now, tell me, why are you on this finasteride? Why are you on this Remidex? Oh, because my estrogen and my... And I would just point it out to them and say, exactly. So you were taking such a dose that the body was causing an adverse spill into DHT and estrogen, which were causing prostate problems and causing these other issues. And so I show that to them because that was pretty typical or pretty common that I would see that. And I would say, look, if we just get your testosterone levels to normal, then you should feel fine. Here's the other big mistake that I saw, though. A lot of patients would go into their doc, depending on what kind of physician they were going into, and everything that they were experiencing that was bad, everything from memory to fatigue to erectile function, everything was being treated with testosterone. Well, that's not going to work. The body is more than just a hormone receptor. You know, what I didn't see clinicians doing across the board consistently, how is your cortisol? How is your sleep pattern? Are you eating a good diet? Are you sleeping at night? You can't take the human body, not give it good food, not give it good rest, and then expect smearing some testosterone cream to just erase all those mistakes. It's just it's unreasonable. And so a lot of times when I would approach the patient with, look, we're going to take a full-spectrum approach to your health. We're going to address all the lifestyle factors, and we're going to get your testosterone into a normal range. Almost unanimously, people felt better, right? They started to improve. And so it is. It's, it's kind of a discussion. Um, it can be a challenge, but if you explain what you're doing and expand your window of what you're treating, then it works really well. So I'd like to, um, before
0: we get into the natural ways to, or why we're having low testosterone problems and, and how to increase it naturally, I just want to kind of summarize and, and come to clarity on, I think this is what you're saying. Number one is when you do um, cream topical creams you're using between you know five and 15 milligrams let's say and you're measuring by saliva
1: testing correct yes if i'm using a topical cream i'm always measuring by saliva and what's interesting is some people say well as soon as you give somebody testosterone you're going to block your own production that's not what i've seen if you keep your doses low let's say a guy's got some symptoms and his level is 350 or 400 not terrible but not great Um, can you get his body to make more of its own? Yeah, you can. The other option is to give him a little bit of topical. What if you just gave him 2.5 milligrams? Would you shut down his natural production? And the answer is no, you really wouldn't. It'd be an additive effect. As you go up to 5, you might start to threaten his production a little bit. And as you go up to 7.5 and 10, it's more likely you're going to begin to shut down his natural production. But early on, giving low doses of adjunctive testosterone, can be very helpful without getting into full replacement. I can't. I
0: can't. You, just, you took the, the the thought right out of my mind. The last couple of weeks, I was th- <laughs> I w- I was thinking, what happens when you give two and a half or five milligrams? Now, in what person would that be? Would that be the age group of, let's say, a forty-five or fifty-year-old that was low, or how how would you work that?
1: Well, you know, you were at my talk in Vegas, and realistically, when we talk about low testosterone, we now we have to look at everybody from the age of twenty to one hundred. I mean, the the men that have low testosterone these days are, as a culture, our entire species is making less testosterone today than we were a decade or two or three ago. And so it becomes a a much broader application. Um, So, yeah, typically we're thinking of guys, what, in their late 40s, 50s, maybe 60s, where we're going to use a little topical testosterone, because the guy with low T in his 20s, his 30s, his 40s, I'm hopefully never going to have to give them testosterone. We're going to do things to stimulate their body to make their own because it's healthier and cheaper. And it's just there's a lot of advantages to that. So, yeah, you're probably accurate in saying that it's probably somebody in their early 50s who says, you know, my erections just aren't as good or my energy is not as good or my cognition's just kind of fading. And, the, you know, the, the $10 million question is always, what's the normal testosterone? Um, and we always say, well, you know, 500, 600, somewhere in that range. And I wanted to dispel a few myths right here, too, because the notion that our goal at any time is to get a man's testosterone above 1,000 is wrong and dangerous. I have two men in my entire practice. My practice is fairly sizable. I have two men that have walked in off the street and had a testosterone in the 900s. And funny thing is, they were both guys that were in their early 70s, all right? And so this idea that testosterone rises are as normal at 900 or 1,000 is so absolutely inaccurate. Most guys, if you just went out to the street, grabbed 100 guys and checked them, they're going to run five to 600 as a range. Um, that's been my experience. And so my goal is to get them in that range with a good amount of D- or a good amount of sex hormone binding globulin, and feeling good. So The labs are one thing, but the clinical picture to me is equally as important as the lab. I have one guy in my practice, his testosterone's only 400, and his refraction isn't that high. And so you get a little concerned and you begin to look for symptoms. And yet he'll tell you, I feel awesome. My energy is great, my brain is great, my muscles are great, my erections are great. I'm not gonna treat him. His clinical picture is pristine. But yeah, when that guy gets around, 400, 350, heading toward 300. He's the one that's at risk. Who doesn't need full replacement? But if we can get the, if we can bump him a little bit by either getting him to make a little more of his own, or giving him a little extra testosterone, that's where I use the small dose topical. Let's um, let's go to
0: shots for a second. Then we'll go to the natural ways to improve testosterone. So, what are your? How do you administer testosterone shots? We're measuring serum now. How do you measure testosterone and, and how much you give? I mean, excuse me, how much you give in, when you're giving injections? Yeah.
1: And when I give injections, I always use serum because we just have more data. We have more time using serum. And so we feel comfortable what, with what normal ranges are. Um, Saliva is still a bit of a slippery slope. We, we have an idea of what healthy ranges are, but we just don't have the same kind of history and experience with it. Um, so when I get to injectable, I am more comfortable looking at serum. I feel confident that I'm not going to create toxicity. Um, you know, most guys, like we talked about, I just kind of figure 10 milligrams a day. And if you said, well, there's seven days in a week. So that's 70 milligrams. Classically, we said 200 milligrams every two weeks. The problem with that is it creates really high peaks and really low troughs. So I, over the last few years, have really adopted a twice a week sub-Q pattern because there is literature to show that you can give it sub-Q and therefore it doesn't hurt as much and guys are less hesitant to use the sub-Q route than they are the IM route. And I can give it twice a week so I can use smaller doses. So I usually start somebody, if I start injectable tea, it's because we've either tried something to get you to make your own or let's say you're 60 and I really don't have confidence that the light cells are going to jump back into action. I typically start at 35 milligrams twice a week. So that's 70 milligrams. That's 10 a day on average. And then I kind of see how they feel, and I check levels. And I go from 35 to 40, 45 to 50, and rarely, rarely, I would say less than 5% of my patients are on anything above 50 milligrams twice a week. Um, Measure levels, manage the uh, estrogen and DHT. And again, if I'm giving normal, healthy levels, I shouldn't see problems with excessive estrogen or excessive DHT. If I do, that means I should be looking at their gut. They're not processing or they're not detoxifying. Um, You know, they're not getting enough diendomethane in the diet and they're having metabolic issues. So I go that route first and then only as a last resort will I go to using things like finasteride or uh, aromatase inhibitors and astrazole. And when I do, it's at very low doses, maybe once or twice a week at a very low dose. Uh, Because really, my dosing of testosterone should be physiologic, not super physiologic.
0: Uh, We are talking to Dr. Gary Huber. Uh, He is an expert in hormone replacement therapy. uh, Uh, Do you still do any emergency medicine, or are you just totally an integrative medicine? I
1: have not worked in an ER for 10 years. (laughs) Okay. And And uh, i am always asked, do you miss it? Nope, got my fill. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're
0: talking about uh, testosterone therapy in men. How much is hype? Who really needs it? And how to increase your own testosterone production? I keep I keep saying this. I'm I'm going to get to the the natural um, uh, inducers. But one thing for men who are getting the gels out there from a regular prescription, that too is overdosing. Correct in your opinion? the the prescription drills, like androgel or something like that oh uh, yeah
1: and Tember- yeah now androgel androderm came out with a product where one pump was twelve and a half milligrams so for the guy that's you know using that kind of dose that could work but the testum the, I mean the testum comes in a packet you can't you can't accurately alter it and it's fifty milligrams per packet and that's just too much and I talked to both uh, manufacturers of, of, of testum and uh, androderm. And I said, look, guys, why don't you make a lower dose? And I talked to them. In fact, this is something everybody needs to know. I talked to both science departments at both pharmaceutical houses, and I said, show me one article, one, where you have properly tested. The rate of absorption is 10%. Show it to me. They had nothing. They had zero, not one study, not one lick of evidence to show that it absorbs a 10% rate. I said, well, then how can you put that on your label? Well, it's just a given. That's just what we believe. That's what you believe? This (laughs) is science. This isn't a a religion. So, you know, I've asked them why they don't make a lower dose, and they said, because everybody wants to give higher doses. So I don't see it coming anytime soon. All right. So let's get to the the
0: natural ways to increase testosterone. Um, Or why do you think we're low as a society
1: in general? Let's go to there first. Oh, my goodness. There's lots of great literature out there, especially uh, in the areas of looking at phthalates and BPA and plasticizers. You know, when you look at our lifestyle, think about your great-grandparents and how much of their food was wrapped in plastic, heated in plastic, stored in plastic, consumed through plastics, plastic straws, uh, you know, Starbucks coffee through plastic lids. I'm not picking on Starbucks. love Starbucks. But our exposure to toxins is unprecedented. How many pesticides and herbicides and toxins with every passing year and every passing deca- decade, there's dozens and dozens of new chemicals that we've added into the environment, and we're sucking these things into our system. BPA, and not pick on just BPA, it's just, it happens to be the most famous, but there are many bisphenols. There's bisphenol B and C and G and M. The list goes on, but bisphenol A is the most researched. BPA has every negative effect you would ever want to run from with regards to sex and fertility. So if you're a guy, BPA will shrink your testicles. Sounds good? I like that? BPA will reduce your testosterone production. It'll decrease the lighting cell activity. It will reduce sperm cell motility. It'll reduce sex drive. I mean it just it's it's a destroyer. And yet here we go walking around with everything we eat covered in plastic. And pesticides and herbicides and we're not eating enough organic. So the so the whole toxic load what happens is those things actually bind the receptors of the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and disrupt their performance. Heavy metals, mercury, lead. I mean, does anybody here have a silver amalgam in their mouth? You know, does anybody ever, I live in Cincinnati, we burn coal to make energy. Well, coal, when you burn coal, you throw methylmercury up into the air. Then you breathe it in, and it comes down on top of you. But all this toxic burden is arresting your hypothalamus, disabling it from functioning. Did you play high school football? Were you in a car accident? Did you get hit about the head, you know, at any point in your, in your life? All those little micro traumas can cause the hypothalamus to prematurely age. Can we recover from that? We can. We can do things to affect that. Polypharmacy is another one. So many drugs being taken, especially by the 40, 50-year-old crowd. You know, the hypertensive medications, the statins, the metformins, the sulfonylureas, all these things can have a negative influence on your hypothalamus, and its ability to stimulate the production of luteinizing hormone. If you don't make LH, testicles aren't going to go to work. Stress, sleep, weight gain, sugar. Americans eat 150 pounds of sugar a year. So this look at your life right now. Just ask yourself, how much plastic is in my life? Am I taking any drugs? Am I stressed? Yes. Am I getting adequate sleep? Probably not. Am I overweight, or am I excessively eating processed foods and sugar? And if you answered yes to more than one of those, then that's having a negative impact on your ability to make luteinizing hormone and the ability of your testicles to work. And that's what we've seen in the studies. A 50-year-old man today, I'm talking the whole society, a 50-year-old man today makes less testosterone than a 50-year-old man from 1980 and less than a guy from the 1970s. It's because of these stressors, and it's because of a hypothalamic pituitary axis. So there are ways to fix, repair, regenerate, clean up the HP axis so that we can get natural production of luteinizing hormone to go up. Well, I think you so That's sa- what we focus on.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, you said something that I think most men don't think about, and some practitioners, as you think of, excuse the expression, but you think of the text the testicles being the problem. And and you're talking about most of the problem being upstairs in the brain, which is sometimes hard yeah. for, for a man to grasp because he just wants to say, you know, give me a hormone that comes from the testicle and we'll be fine. So I've got that part. So how do you, all right, we talked about some ways to improve it. Are there any chemically induced ways to improve it, like Clomid or something like that? Or Tell me how you
1: approach somebody aside from changing those lifestyle factors. Well, When I look at a guy, and again, I'm trying not to give testosterone as much as I can avoid it because as soon as I do, I'm taking on a lot of responsibility. I might overdose that patient. I might create problems. It's much healthier if he makes his own. And we make testosterone four, five, six times a day in a series of successive spikes, our biggest spike at o'clock in the morning, another spike a few hours later, and again and again and again. I I want your body to replicate its own normal physiology. And to do that, I've got to get the HP to work. So when I see a guy that's in his 30s, his 40s, even early 50s, I'll go as high as 55. What's wrong with trying Clomid first? Let's say i got a guy, and I had this, pa- this patient this past week. Uh, he's only 40, and his testosterone, he had a lot of low T symptoms. You know, fatigue and cognitive drive was low, endurance was low, and strength was diminishing. But he's only 40 well, do I really want to put him on Clomid? I could, but his testosterone was already, it was only at 400. It wasn't horrible. Why don't we try something to just stimulate the hypothalamus to work on its own? So I use Agnus Castus in the morning and then I put him on pituitary complex at night. And those things are going to help kind of stimulate the HP to work normally. Meanwhile, I tell them, look, we've got six months to get your body cleaned up, meaning we have to really look at the detox angle. So we're going to measure heavy metals we're going to enhance your detox pathways. We're going to clean up your diet. And if we can take some of the garbage out of the HP, if we can take some of the metals and some of the plastics and toxins out, and by the way, there are things that do a good job of that. Chlorella gut, uh, is a gr- it will absorb some pesticides and absorb metals. So I'll use heavy doses of chlorella and probiotics and enhance their liver detox while oh, I'm using Agnes Castus Pituitary Complex and then recheck. <clears throat> Are they getting better? Do I see that testosterone go up to 500, 600? And I can tell you from experience, I have seen a guy increase his testosterone output by 200 points without taking a single drug, just by doing the very things I just detailed. If it doesn't work, fine. Let's take it up a notch. Let's go to Clomid. Uh, Clomid or uh or Clomiphene rather is a medication that's been around for many years. It does the same thing in a man, it does in a woman. In a woman, we use it for fertility. It does the same thing in a guy, it does in a girl. It increases luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, which leads to better sperm production, better testosterone production. Always pulsatile, 50 milligrams twice a week is where I start, and I always check a level in four weeks to see, is it doing what we think it's doing? And I can tell you that the vast majority of people that you ever use Clomid on are going to increase their testosterone production. They're going to basically double it, okay? They're going to basically double it. Now, I have cases where a guy's testosterone... I have one guy. I was going to present this next month at a conference in Florida. His original testosterone was 63. There's reasons why it was that low. He was abusing some compounds that were really causing problems. But when I put him on Clomid... It jumped up to 714 from 63 just by using Clomid. Now, this is a guy that was in his early 40s, much better organ reserve. You may not get that same response from a guy in his early 60s. So Clomid uh, is, is something I use consistently. And any I put somebody on Clomid, I tell them, look, we're going to do this for a year, and then after a year we're going to take you off of it and see if you can't continue to make it on your own. Because if we've cleaned up your HP and we've re-stimulated it, some guys can come off the Clomid and not need it anymore. So it's cheap, it's safe, it's effective, and there's a chance that it'll correct the problem, and you don't need ongoing therapy. Well, i got to say, that one thing on Clomid...
0: If no one else is listening, it was worth it for me worth it for me to go to, school, <laughs> go to school for about five minutes because I've used Clomid before, but not quite like that. Now, so then you find no need, if, if this works as well as it does, you find no need for using HCG to
1: stimulate testicular function. No, because realistically, that's what Clomid's doing. Clomid works at the HP. It's making LH, and LH is stimulating score. So let's talk about HCG just very briefly. Let's say I put you on Clomid, 50 milligrams twice a week, and we got a suboptimal response. Let's say you started at 200 and it rose to 300. Big whoop, not enough impact. So, number one, if I just stay with that dose, will you make more and more lytic cells over time and maybe gradually have a more robust response? Yes, that's a possibility. Number two, let's increase the dose. Let's go to 50 milligrams three times a week. Can that work? Yeah, that can work really nice. And then sometimes once you get that response, you can later back them down to twice a week. So that's an option. Option three, let's really hit the testicles with HCG. So what does HCG do? Well, HCG is basically LH and FSH combined. That's how the molecule looks. And so you're giving the guy basically a blast of luteinizing hormone. And that's going to trigger the testicles to make more lytic cells. Just like your cells can make more mitochondria, if they're properly stressed by exercise. Your testicles will make more lighting cells if properly stimulated. And so you can use HCG at a relatively low dose, maybe 100 to 200 units, uh, a couple of times a week, three times a week, just to give it a little pulsatile surge in combination with Clomid, and then see if that didn't hit the tipping point to move you forward. You know, this is a, if I have taken my initial
0: classes 15, 20 years ago from you, I had to saved myself a lot of grief. <laughs> that's,
1: all, that's, all, that's all I got to I I say. Tell you, it's a fascinating field, isn't it? Like you said, there are so many opinions out there. <laughs> and, and look, guys, I, I don't say this because I'm the expert. I, I don't know squat. I know what I know. Um, but, but I'm telling you from a very humble, honest opinion, everything I'm telling you is based on what I found in the literature. I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to open a chain of hormone clinics across the country, I'm telling you what's worked. And every time that I approach an area in hormones, it always has to meet the, the, the definition, right? Um, it has to make sense physiologically. It has to be backed by literature. And when you apply that, there's enough literature out there to show you that what I'm doing actually works. I respect other opinions. I respect that other guys are getting great results doing it differently than how I'm doing it. But my practice has always been guided by a general principle uh, you know, first do no harm, uh, be effective. But you know, if something sounds weird or odd or you know just left of center, it probably is. So be careful. Make sure you're not causing problems. And and have a broader look at the body. The body is not just a hormone machine.
0: I have one question about the clomid, like any hormone, you all. If you give a hormone, you're blo- you're reducing the upline message so to speak like you give thyroid you reduce TSH response so when you give clomid higher up which seems better to me than acg are you shutting down some message to
1: the hypothalamus i guess what i'm trying to say well that's where the clomid is working the clomid is working on the hypothalamus because the how our bodies work again going back to the base physiology when we make testosterone and estrogen estrogen feeds back to the hypothalamus because as a guy makes testosterone percentage of it converts with aromatase into estrogen. Estrogen feeds back to the hypothalamus and says, hey, we're good here. Shut her down, big boy. We got plenty. Uh, testosterone feeds back to the pituitary and sends a similar signal. So when we use Clomid, Clomid is a CERM. It's, it's an estrogen receptor modulator, and it's blocking the estrogen receptor at the hypothalamus. And so the hypothalamus is basically saying, oh my gosh, there's no estrogen in the system. I better get busy and generate more testosterone. And so that's how it stimulates. Stimulating from, from the very um, base. Um, I've not seen a lot of side effects. There are a few side effects you can see with it, but I've not seen side effects related to thyroid or cortisol or other hormones. Uh, the side effects, uh, vision disturbances can occur. Sometimes mood changes, anxiety can occur. But if you look at the literature, and my experience bears out what the literature shows, if you stop the Clomid... The side effect goes away, so there, there's no risk of a permanent debilitating side effect from its use. Let me close. I, I lied and
0: I've kept you an extra 13 minutes, and it'll be another three or four minutes. <laughs> so, That's fine. because I know that pe- this is all really good stuff for people to really help educate themselves. So let's get into the 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 myth, maybe from the more traditional side, that testosterone is going to cause prostate cancer, uh, or increase mm-hmm. or increase the risk to heart disease, which is a little more vague at the moment. So help me on those. Don't two. get me on my soapbox. All right. Get on it. Get on it. <laughs> Climb up about what, uh,
1: two feet and go. Go, boy. <laughs> Look, uh, yeah, so testosterone, what's interest, if you guys are really interested in understanding prostate cancer better, Ed Friedman's book, Ed Friedman uh, wrote a book talking about prostate cancer, breast cancer. It's fabulous. And it will really help you understand prostate cancer. I think the nature of prostate cancer is misunderstood. Prostate cancer is the only cancer we know of that's always a heterogeneous cell mix. Meaning, you know, we have this tendency to think that testosterone stimulates prostate cancer to grow. Well, in prostate cancer, there's three kinds of cells. There's cells that grow under the influence of testosterone. There's cells that grow under the influence of estrogen and there's their cells that grow and they're totally ignorant of estrogen and testosterone. And that's why when we take prostate cancer patients and we treat them with androgen deprivation therapy, if you look at the literature, classically, again and again, over and over again, that's going to work for two years. And that's it. Two years. Why? Because all we've done is we've stopped the cells that are responsive to testosterone from growing. But what haven't we done? Well, we haven't stopped the cells that respond to estrogen or the other cells that don't respond and so after two years those populations of cells expand and take over and the benefit from testosterone uh, deprivation therapy is over okay so testosterone is not the cause when if, prostate cancer is too complex a topic to hit in just three or four minutes but understand that basic premise and then actually men with higher testosterone do not get prostate cancer or have less aggressive prostate cancer Because testosterone is hitting the cell membrane receptor, which is stimulating apoptosis. As testosterone goes into the cell and gets converted to DHT, ah, now DHT affecting the intracellular androgen receptor. That's a whole different signal. And that can make proteins that block the apoptotic signal. And then you have estrogen's influence on the cell membrane and internally. So there's a lot of different signals going on. It's not just as simple as testosterone, good or bad. Um, so you don't have to worry about testosterone causing prostate cancer. And it's much too, it's, it's a more complex topic than I can really do justice to in this forum. Uh, heart disease, that is baloney, baloney, garbage. So when you look at the original studies that even hinted that testosterone was bad for the heart, I can't, I can't point at some of the worst studies of all time ever produced. They're terrible. And there is a tsunami of literature, I mean from every angle, showing us with clear, clear evidence that at every level, testosterone is beneficial for your heart. It decreases the rate of plaqueing. It, it has um, an impact on the coronary vessels. It actually dilates the coronary vessels. It reduces CRP and inflammation. If I asked you, what's the cause of heart disease? Any well read integrated physician is going to say it's inflammation, not cholesterol. So what is inflammation? Well, let's just say it's CRP, C-reactive protein is a marker. Many, many studies showing that as testosterone goes down, CRP goes up. And interestingly, when you give testosterone to guys with a high CRP, it goes down. Testosterone reduces blood pressure. Statins don't do that. Statins do reduce your testosterone production. Testosterone directly correlates with diabetes, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, and coronary heart disease, meaning if you took a a, a 1,000 guys randomly off the street and simply measured their testosterone, the guys with the highest testosterone would consistently have the lowest blood sugar, the lowest belly fat, and the lowest risk for metabolic syndrome. And as testosterone drops, guess what goes up? C-reactive protein, blood sugar, triglycerides, heart disease, metabolic syndrome, and heart attacks. So... There is just there. There is not a leg to stand on. If you want to have a debate about whether testosterone is dangerous for your heart, you're going to lose that battle, and you're going to look really foolish because there's so much literature showing the opposite.
0: Let me ask you this then: If we are coming from the 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 view that we've been overdosing by giving big doses of creams,
1: could that, in fact, aggravate cardiovascular so, risk? Um, I think it's potentially it can, because I think what you're causing uh, potentially is tachyphylaxis, so you're losing your testosterone benefit, and nobody's really done that study to my knowledge, uh, but I think some of the earlier studies, a lot of the earlier studies, were just looking at if men received testosterone, period. They really didn't validate the route in the dose, and so they were mixed studies that were horrible to get any reasonable information from, but I think you're on to something there, Kirk. I think if we do overdose it, could we potentially be increasing risk? I think yes, and the mechanism would be causing tachyphylaxis, thereby negating the healthy benefit of testosterone. When wouldn't you give testosterone therapy? Is there any no-nos? Always always have a good reason to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I get your question, and I think it's a valid one. But always have a reason when you see a guy, why am I giving him testosterone? Does he really need testosterone? Maybe he's just tired because he doesn't sleep. Maybe he's got cortisol issues. And I use this, this line many, many times. It's not mine. I stole it. I just can't remember who I stole it from. But hormones are the sprinkles on the cupcake. But first, you have to have the cupcake. And the cupcake is gut health, stable immune system, um, cortisol, thyroid. You've got to have those things first. Because without those, just giving hormones isn't going to get you a great result. I think that's why some of these hormone clinics fail miserably because everybody that walks in is a pellet patient. Well, that's not reality. Um, are there any true no-nos? Just, you have to be careful with prostate cancer. If they actively have cancer, testo- giving them testosterone, you need to be talking with their oncologist. Everybody needs to be on board. So don't go out there being a cowboy, you know, slapping testosterone on prostate cancer patients simply because Dr. Huber said, well, testosterone doesn't cause prostate cancer. I'd exercise some caution there and you need to have a lot of discussion with the patient. Age? No, there's no limit to age. My father is 86 and he's only 86 because I gave him testosterone pellets and if I didn't, he'd be dead by now. I say that with great confidence more than a decade ago. I mean, I just saw him shriveling up, drying up and blowing away. I mean, he wasn't the man that he had always been. And when I started using testosterone, I used topically at first, and I would still have him him on topical today. One problem, he's not consistent. He's not reliable, giving himself his own cream. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to give you a pellet, and that way I'm confident. Um, So in an 86-year-old man, his cognition, his strength, his attitude, his demeanor, his mood, everything blossomed when I simply got his testosterone up to normal. So I don't see age as being a limiting factor. I don't see cardiovascular. In fact, cardiovascular would be an indication, not a limiting factor. Um, the only no-nos is, be smart. Don't give crazy doses. Don't, I, I had a doctor walk in my office once. He worked at a pellet clinic, and he was giving himself, well, he's having his partner do it, 2,400 milligrams of testosterone by pellet. That's crazy. So the only no-no is, be smart. Don't use crazy high doses. Stay physiologic. And if things aren't working, look at the testosterone, look at the estrogen, look at the DHT, look at all those things and figure out, is my dosing off or is there something else affecting uh, the impact?
0: You know, um, you set a pearl there for me. And when you mentioned your dad, I I think I share with you the conference. I have a hundred year old that um, just turned a hundred and put them on testosterone injection and, and the, they come in once a week for it. I, you know, I can't do the twice a week thing. So they come in once a week with a little B vitamin mix and it's about 80, 80 milligrams a week. And if he doesn't get it, if he skips three weeks, he's asleep on the table. Um, when he gets it, he at least has a fighting chance. And I really think that testosterone therapy in the elderly, elderly, even a once a week injection, if it was at a moderate dose, could do dramatic dramatic things for people i mean like your dad i mean I, I see that clearly i think that's probably the bigger place to give it is almost the the older older men but i
1: agree um and there was a study by the uh, veterans administration with the uh, they looked at just testosterone levels and mortality and they showed a simple correlation the lower your testosterone was the earlier you were going to die um, and i think you're doing a very smart thing kirk because you're putting b vitamins in that injection and you know there was one study that looked at just uh nursing home patients and B vitamin levels and what basically what they said then the study is if you just sprinkle B vitamins liberally through a nursing home half of them would get up and walk out of the building you know it can have that big of a physiologic impact on the older population so I think you're you're right on target with that.
0: Yeah. Someday the dream study will be testosterone and uh, my triad of B1, B12, and folate in an injection to one half of a, a geriatric men's ward and the other half doesn't get it and <laughs> and um, and see see what happens. But I I, I have no doubt. Listen, Doctor Hubert Huber, this was like for me, and if people will really listen to this and my patients, because I always try to get them to do lifestyle first, but it's just like sometimes talking to a wall, you've answered some of the yeah. big questions about dosing that really confuse people and practitioners. I'll say that very clearly. Um, and then the lifestyle things to do. I just, I love the way you presented it. And I, and and if you can teach more at the different places, it would have saved me a lot, a lot, of, <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of thousands of dollars hearing it in different ways. You know, so I'm just
1: telling you. So, well, Many many different ways uh, to approach things, and if I could, uh, Kirk, were you able to make our Wednesday webinar? No, because for uh, it's
0: tough for me. Because if you want to put on an anti habit, it's my sleep. You know, I, I I just work a lot, and so you know, <laughs> if if you go to bed at one o'clock and you get up at four fifteen to do that, it's a little brutal. But I I didn't. That's brutal. Yeah. So do you but,
1: mind if I mention it here?
0: No, go no, please do. Go ahead.
1: Okay. Look, part of what Kirk just said, look, my mission, uh, I want to help other clinicians reach a a healthy uh, practice where they're doing what they want to do and they're making a good income and they're comfortable. They're not in jeopardy. And I see so many docs trying to make the transition into integrative medicine and they don't know exactly how. And there's just so many unanswered questions. So uh, some months ago, um, it's been actually more than a year now, I think, we started doing Wednesday morning webinars. And I just made this available to all the fellows that I was meeting at the A4M MMI conferences. And it's just a network of docs just getting together. Um, we have topics every week, Wednesday morning at 730. And we banter about cases and things like we talked about here. And if anybody has an interest in joining us, I open this invitation to anybody listening. Uh, just send me an email at help, H-E-L-P, help at huber. Dot com. That's H-U-B-E-R-P-M, as in PaulMary.com. And um, all the webinars are archived, and you can go back and look about how to do uh, metal chelation, how to do thyroid treatments. Um, and this is just an open conversation, so it's clinicians sharing ideas. Because like Kirk said, had he got this information long ago, it would have fast-forwarded his, his uh, level of uh, uh, treatment, and that's the whole purpose of the group. It's Just fast forward, everybody, so we can all do well in this field and, and make an impact in this planet um, beyond traditional medicine. Well, Dr.
0: Huber, thank you so much. Go enjoy the rest of your day after when the office is closed, day after Christmas. Hopefully you'll get to do something nice. <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And until next time, and of course, everything will be summarized below uh, the podcast, and there'll be links to Dr. Huber um, so, thank you again, and I'll talk to you soon. Uh, thank you, Kirk. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.